Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. The working class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. The, the time where people trust politicians, that's over. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir. This is a Westminster bubble thing. What? Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge, the Eastminster podcast from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preecy. And I'm Alan Finlayson. So, Alan, what are we going to be talking about in these podcasts? We're going to talk about politics, but we're going to talk about politics in a kind of bigger context. Okay. There's loads of things that I think are very confusing about politics, but they confuse me. And to make sense of them, we can't just talk about the politicians and the parties in Westminster. We've got to think about how society is changing, how the culture is changing, how the way people think and act and believe politics is changing. And that's what we're going to work out. Okay. And one of the useful things about being here at the universities, we get a lot of great guest speakers and we'll hear from those as we go along. So what about you? Why, are you, why do you want to make this podcast? Uh, so I work here. Um, I'm a professor of political and social theory. So I'm interested in political ideas uh, and trying to understand what people are thinking when they're thinking about politics. Uh, but I can't work all that, all that out on my own. There's lots of people around here who can, who help me understand it. And we're going to talk to them and find out what they're thinking about when they think about politics, media, journalism, literature, art, whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I guess I should say about me, really. Yeah, I want to know why you're here. Okay. I'm a broadcast journalist. I've been one for 20 odd years. I've worked in radio, national radio, local. I've worked uh, in local TV as well. And I've worked on a number of different programmes on news and on politics programmes. So, But now I spend most of my time lecturing here at UEA on journalism and politics and training the next generation of journalists. So what I'm really interested in is how do we train those journalists to play a really important role in a democratic society and making sure that people understand the world and they understand politics and they understand what's going on so they can make informed choices. So it's a really interesting time to be doing that and hopefully we'll be able to talk about some of those issues. So you know what you're doing? Hopefully, yes. Good. Okay, so we should introduce our guests. Let's start. Um, Dr Ben Little, welcome. Hello. Tell us what you do here at the UEA. I'm a lecturer in media and cultural politics. Um, I am an editor of Soundings Journal, which is a journal of politics and culture, which is sort of for a mixed audience of, I guess, politicians, activists, academics, and it sort of sits between those three spaces. Um, I teach, uh, amongst other things, activist campaigning, so I'm interested in turning students who are probably already troublemakers a lot of the time into better troublemakers. Okay. But I teach them in their third year, so they're better troublemakers when they leave. Yeah, um, okay, that's a good idea. Yeah, so that, that's me. Okay, thank you. And also, uh, Professor John Street, tell us, what do you do here? I'm a professor of politics uh, whose particular interests are the ways in which media affect uh, politics, the way in which politicians use media, but also the ways in which other forms of culture media are used to communicate. So I'm especially interested in the role that music plays in politics. Okay, thank you. So today we're going to start off talking about political communication. I mean, what what do we mean by that, Alan? Uh, well, lots of people mean different things by it. For me, I mean, it, I would think about political communication in the most basic sense how people talk about politics, how they argue politics, how they try and persuade each other about politics, uh, but also in the systems and media they use to do that and how that changes who gets to communicate what, who has the power over political communication. So I would think of it in that really basic and really broad sense. John, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think I, I would share that view. And I think what, what's noticeable, of course, is that historically the way in which the study of political communication has changed from a kind of obsession with what governments and parties are doing in their communication with citizens, the way they try to inform them or, or get them to do certain things. And that's now broadening out in the way that Alan's describing so that 
the whole range of forms of communication become political communication one way or another. Ben, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this quite specifically and how groups of people organise to communicate what they want to powerful people and, you know, it's changing. Actually, get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's what about you, Claire? You're, as yeah, a journalist, does well, it mean something different? To exactly. You? I mean, I'm interested in 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 this as well. I, I think w- when I speak to politicians, what's really interesting is what we're trying to do is is get them to explain stuff. You know, what's the policy? How's it going to work in practice? And it amazes me how many times you ask them that question and they really can't answer it. Mm. So 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 trying to understand and get get those messages and get them to allow the public to understand is is part of the core role of what we're doing. Let's have a listen to um, one of our interviewees. I went out last last year to speak to um, Charles Clark, former Labour Home Secretary. He, he guest lectured here for a while. And I asked him about the spin in the Blair years, which, which, which was really interesting. And I asked him if he felt that had gone too far. I think it's firstly important to acknowledge that the spin which New Labour was famous for, Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson in particular, was actually a fight back against the concentrated media attack on the Kinnock leadership of the party, with a whole set of lies told by the media about where we were, and an inability to get our case across (coughs) through the media, who were viscerally opposed to everything that Labour stood for. Uh, And that led us to think that message control, having a clear sense of discipline in what you were saying, trying to ensure that everybody was uh, speaking in the same direction, was a crucial element of the ability of Labour to challenge the Conservatives with the backing of the Conservative press, which was very strong indeed. I would say myself that that didn't need to have gone on more than a couple of years into the Labour government after 97, and there were some aspects of the control area, I wouldn't so much call it spin, but the political control idea, which went on too far at that point. I still think it's exaggerated the negative impact of it and the suggestion that New Labour invented spin is absolutely hilarious when you look at the roles of Bernard Ingham and others working for Margaret Thatcher. So he points out that New Labour didn't invent spin, but did it add to the mistrust of politicians? John, what do you think? I suppose it did to an extent, but I mean, I think Charles Clark's right to... To put it in context, the, the, the point was the Labour in 1997 was, and, and in the years uh, prior to that, had, had a real struggle with the, with the popular press in particular. And it, and it was constantly being abused. And, and, and in that way, it forced itself to think, well, how are we going to win over the public? If we don't get our message across, we're going to lose. And I suppose that really drove the idea that you've got to have a very specific message and you've got to make sure it comes across. And Alistair Campbell, with his own experience in the, in those, in the tabloid press, was very effective as, a, as mm. a way of communicating what New Labour was about. He was very effective at bullying journalists as well. Absolutely. And, and I mean, <laughs> well, I think that's true. And, uh, but I think if you were, you know, inside New Labour, that's what you needed because mm. there was no other way you were going to get your message effective. But have the public had enough of that kind of thing now? Yeah, so, that, so when Charles is talking, he's talking about maybe 20 years ago, 1997, or even earlier, in fact, late 1980s. Uh, and he's talking about a kind of political battle that was going on, not just within political parties in Westminster, but between the powerful players in journalism and in news media, but also a battle for people's attention to get people to be interested, to, pay, to, to learn about or hear about what policies they were proposing. So that battle shaped what New Labour was doing and gave them a very strong sense of how to manage the news, how to dominate headlines and how to win elections. But it doesn't work that way anymore. 
the news systems that they were responding to, the broadcast journalism that they were adapting to doesn't work in the same way now as it did in all that time ago. And people have gotten used to some of the ways in which politicians try to carry news agendas in, in the way that favours them. If we become a bit cynical about it, do you think, Ben? I think it's important to be cynical about it. I think when going back to looking at what happened under New Labour is that it wasn't, it wasn't simply about communications, the spin culture. Um, there, was, there was something else going on. And, and spin was, you know, cultural theorists have identified this sort of the spin of the New Labour years as one of the key ways in which the ideological shift that New Labour did, the movement from a sort of social democratic, um, you know, the state provides services sort of idea to one which really centred like the, the figure of the entrepreneur and entrepreneurialism. Um, and spin was part of that because spin was the bit which which enabled the party to go, uh, OK, well, we're still looking out for you, but practically this is the only thing that can happen. And it was that that machinery, that sort of that way of presenting the party as this sort of pragmatic uh, with the times um political force which which gave them their sort of that period of dominance and it was also about about creating a new kind of idea of what a politician was or what a political leader was and there'd been lots of effort put into creating leader figures before but the particular way of modeling tony blair presenting him as embodying a particular ideological outlook and concentrating attention on that leader figure rather than the party more generally had quite a profound change on electoral politics but also on routine day-to-day politics and a kind of well, sort of celebrity politics, mm-hmm. I suppose, as well. Yeah. But I mean, the only thing I would say, I mean, I think it's true what you're saying. I, I mean, I would, I would be sceptical rather than cynical about it, but I think there is a sense in which Labour's position was different because of the nature of the opposition that mainstream media had to, and even within the BBC to an extent. But there was clearly a much more difficult environment for them to work in than was the case for the, for the Conservatives. Or if you're the third party, there's another problem again. So I think there are particular contextual factors that play into why you use particular strategies. And I agree that things are changing, but I still think there is that kind of balance of power within the media does make it difficult. For I take it that Ben's point is partly that yeah. it sort of involved a capitulation to the media, right? That's it. Yeah, I mean, it, it did. But also, I think there's another way of looking at it in terms of if we're cynical about this now, is these, these sort of this, the, the sort of spin culture or, or worse that we're, we're, we're living, living with now is... The difference between that and New Labour is there, there was a wider project behind why New Labour was engaging in that sort of communicative politics, right? Then, and that project gave it coherence. When, when someone's just spinning for the sake of spinning to maintain tain image now, it's a different sort of thing and people mm-hmm. are more cynical. OK, well, let's, let's hear from another of our interviewees. I went to talk to Ian Dale. Um, he was a, a, con, a Conservative parliamentary candidate um, in North Norfolk. He's now a host on LBC Radio, so he talks to a lot of politicians. And we talked about the problems that he finds getting cabinet ministers to come on air. I don't think it's true to say that people in the May government don't like to do political interviews. It's just that they're prevented from doing them by number 10. And you can understand the logic of it, that we have no opposition or no credible opposition in this country. So Theresa May or her advisers no doubt think, well, why would we take a risk of creating a a needless story by putting up cabinet ministers to react to every single thing, which is what they kind of did under David Cameron. Um, It's like getting blood out of a stone, getting a cabinet minister on programmes. The Marshow, Peston, Sophie Ridge on a Sunday morning, um, those are the programmes that they do. So it was, it was always difficult to persuade p- politicians to do phone-ins, but it's now almost impossible because even if they want to do them, regardless of the party, they're usually prevented from doing so. Does that help the voters understand what's going on? I mean, does it matter if they won't come on the news and won't come on programmes and do interviews? Well, one of the central features of the media in, in a democracy is supposed to be 
to make you know, political leaders accountable. And one of the mechanisms that is supposed to achieve that effect is the interview. It has, it has to be said that the interview and the, the skills that politicians have acquired mean it's very rarely an interrogation. It's yeah. more, you know, Back on, being on message. Exactly. Yeah. You would know that better than I. Yeah. You know, that they will stay on message and you will press them. But there are moments, I think, you know, I think when Andrew Neil, for example, when he was being interviewing in the run up to the last two elections, actually, has been very effective at exposing politicians where, particularly in respect of their manifestos, they've, you know, they're being incoherent or inconsistent or just aren't filling in the details. So I think it is there. I mean, politicians have reasons to be uh, wary of interviews, but I don't think interviews are performing the function that they once did of, of accountability. Mm. And the other thing he's talking about, of course, is phone-ins. And there's always that risk when you open mm. yourself up to a question from the member of the public, anything could happen. Yeah, I mean, I think if you watch uh, the, the sort of stuff which circulates on social media now, if you mm. just fluff an interview just a little bit, like it's it's remix, it's like <laughs> it's turned into a meme, <laughs> like it's got, you know, two and a half million views mm. by the next day. And, Diane and Abbott. It, yeah, and yeah. This, this can be, you know, Nigel Farage is another one who's had those sorts of experiences. And I think I think this is... Um, I think it's a different it's a different media environment. I mean, it's not just the immediate sort of like you know organisation of personnel within the Conservative Party and people. Don't, I mean, I think it's also it's it's just higher risk than it used to be. You must have interviewed politicians. Yeah, I've interviewed um, MPs and MEPs, um, and and there's sort of a feeling that sometimes they know what they're talking about, and sometimes they just don't. You know, and and you know you can interview somebody like Norman Lamb, and and you can ask him almost anything and get a sensible answer out of him, um, and then you talk to others, and they just look like rabbits in the headlights. They just don't. Know what to I'm say. Being very discreet, not saying. <laughs> no, I am being very discreet. But, but, but or, or sometimes, as as we found, you know, they will just pluck something out of the Daily Mail that they mm. read and not be able to source it and not be able to back it up. And that, I suppose, is the real difficulty. You're trying to pin them down and say, actually, where did you get this from? How is it going to work in practice? What does it mean for the public? And and having them on the show is is useful to try and to try and do that. But as you said, they they can be very evasive. On some of them kind of hungry for attention and they want to get on the media and get on the telly yeah it? yeah they do but then sometimes it's those ones that you've got to worry about who are going to be peddling the misinformation I mean I, I interviewed somebody who who just sort of quoted something out of thin air which just was completely wrong from Migration Watch or something or other and and it's those people you've got to worry about and then you think well actually I can't put you on air live because I don't know whether you're going to say something that's just wrong so, so it is really difficult. What about uh, the political messages? Some of you mentioned that and, and the challenges of getting those political messages across and the difficulty we have in terms of keeping people engaged and believing believing what, what's being said. And, and I asked Charles Clark about this and talked about the challenges that he faces with getting political messages across to the public in a way they can engage with now. I think narrative has become more important, the ability to tell a coherent story which hangs together. Uh, But of course, at the moment, we've got an extraordinary development with a number of serious politicians ready to tell straight lies in a big way in order to make their case. I believe that was done by many of those involved in the Leave campaign where they told what they knew were completely untrue lies. I don't know about the whole population of Turkey arriving in Leicester in the next couple of years or whatever, or the famous 350 million. But then Donald Trump doing the same in the United States of America. And I think the challenge for political communications now is how to restore some sense of reality to the media dialogue about what's going on. And I think that is a major, uh, almost existential challenge for our democracy. 
Charles Clark there. Is there a problem, Ben, now in that we just don't know who we can trust? I've got to say, I'm I'm in that category. Like I I just don't know. Like you know, when I see these figures, like I'm checking, double checking. Mm. Where's it come from? Who is this? And there's new sites popping up on mm. all the time, and trying to work out which are reliable. I mean, it it it's a real it's a real issue. It's something which is happening. Mm. I think across our our media, mm. in general, it's not just about political communication. So is that? because of the proliferation of different media outlets? Or is it, like Charles is saying, something to do with politicians having a different attitude to, or being more cavalier than they used to be? I think, I think politicians have worked out that they can get away with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a reaction to a, to a media culture which, as, as you have said in other places, like, is, is structured by conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think conspiracy... Structured by conspiracy like how? Like conspiracy theory mm. um, is one of the sort of dominant genres of of internet of the internet age I, I would say like you know the amount of students I come into contact with who you know genuinely believe that the Twin Towers was an inside job is, is quite scary uh, and where, where do they get that from well they get it from a whole you know barrage of stuff on the internet a whole sort of an ecosystem uh, of misinformation um, and and that's the world that politicians are trying to communicate with and through and to it's a way of reacting, isn't it, to the unclarity as to what's actually true, is to say, well, I'll believe nothing, and then that seems to be a sophisticated position, yeah. and actually it's quite a kind of debilitating position, and, and quite damaging. I mean, you say the politicians get away with it, maybe they do in the moment, but it has a tremendous cost later on in terms of trying to actually organise and mobilise people for political ends. I don't know, Michael Gove, he's, like, he's now re- repositioning himself as a credible environmentalist, having said that all experts, like, you know, we, we've had enough of experts... Like, uh, he's got away with that, I think, you know, I think he's... So that's not just lying, that's also assuming a kind of short attention span or short memory that we're mm-hmm. just going to reinvent ourselves every week. You, just like you put on a new Facebook photo, you put, yeah, that's what he's done, isn't it? He's changed his profile picture. And, and all of a sudden he's yeah. an environmental yeah. um, <laughs> activist. Yeah, he's got long hair and <laughs> earrings. But that sort of leads on to what I was talking to Ian Dale about also and, and, and whether people are actually engaged with political parties or whether they're engaged with politics or whether they're engaged with single issue politics. And maybe that relates to the reasons why in terms of, in terms of trust. So, so let's hear from Ian again. I think people are now less engaged with party politics. They tend to be more engaged with single issue politics. And that is down to the failure of politicians and all the, the expenses scandal had a massive impact on that. Um, people are still cynical about politicians. But I mean, there was never an age when people haven't been cynical about politicians. We like to pretend there was some golden age when everybody really respected politicians and all the rest of it. That that has never been the case. You look at some of the cartoons from the 1800s and they're far more vicious than anything people come up with now nowadays. So I've never really bought this idea that people have disengaged with political issues. They might, to, to an extent, have disengaged with party politics. So though even that now, you could argue, with all political parties experiencing a rise in membership to one degree or another, um, m- maybe that's on the reverse. I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn has one achievement, and it probably is only one, it is getting all these new people to join the Labour Party. Now, some of them are hackneyed old trots from the 1980s, but there's a hell of a lot, lot of young people among them. John Street, is, is he right that we've, that, that we've always been really critical of politicians? It's nothing new. Well, I think actually there is a trend. I mean, the, 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 the respect that politicians held in is in decline, and it's, but it's a, it's, it's a global trend, it seems, almost, uh, with obvious notable exceptions. But it does appear that most people are becoming increasingly disillusioned with 
with politicians. And one of the reasons is this the kind of trope, which is that they, they lie. I mean, I, which is clearly the case. But I think what's involved here is more than just the question whether they're telling the truth or whether they're lying. There's also a, a kind of politics about which Ian is in his implicitly reply, applying, uh, implying the, the, the rise of identity politics and the ways in which, you know, personal experience is now a very important part of the narrative of politics. And that, of course, isn't tested by questions of truth and, and lie. It's, it's about what it meant. And things like Me Too are, I think, in very important interventions in politics based on what people are saying about what they've experienced, which is not there to be questioned in terms of truth or lie, but in terms of what actually needs to feature in the kind of political agenda. So I think we've got these different kinds of concerns, one about the lying politician and the other about the truth of experience that people are yeah, offering. Yeah, and it's not, I, mean, I think part of why what I agree with what Ian says is that there's a shift maybe away from the party as being a certain sort of central mm. focus of all political activity. But that doesn't mean that people are interested, therefore, just in single issues. Something like mm. hashtag Me Too is not a single issue. Mm. It's all kinds mm. of issues Absolutely, yeah. kind of being mm. fused into one particular demand or one particular claim. And so it's really about people finding ways to be political and to communicate politically and argue politically and act politically independent of political parties. And that's been coming for a long time. That's been coming for maybe 40, 50 mm. you know, years. But it seems to be a particularly definitive feature of politics at the moment, uh, although becoming linked again, as he says, to parties. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. And, like, you know, the, the 1950s, the high watermark of party membership, you had, like, you know, two and a half million members of the Conservative Party. And it wasn't just, like, you know, it wasn't a, an organisation which existed purely to win seats in Parliament. Mm. It was, like, this whole social network. Like, mm. and, and, you know, the Labour Party had, had similar figures, although most people access it through unions. Um, and that, that world where everything is organised um, in quite straightforward way you know there's one two radio channel uh, tv mm. channels and like you know a limited number of radio channels like and and you sort of knew which side you're on and, and that but that's coming back that feels very much like that's coming back and that's what's happening with with the rise in the political parties you know it happened first in labor and now the tories are starting to see like you know the age of tory membership is dropping quite rapidly um so yeah you're getting you're getting the the reaction to, to the membership of the Labour Party. I guess part of the, to go back to something John said about kind of identity and a kind of making claims that are not to be judged in the same mm. way as mm. certain kinds of factual claims. I mean, is there a change in the way people relate to their politics? Is that part, is that part of what's happening? That, that being political mm. and staking your political claim might be related to a party, but it's not coming from a very kind of strongly structured sense of being in a particular mm. geographical area joining a particular political mm. party or trade union and doing certain sorts of things, is, is there something changing about how people come to feel political mm. and the kinds of demands mm. that they want to make and the weight those demands have mm. when they're being uh, made? I mean, it's obviously very different from the 1950s now, but I think, I think the idea that political parties can somehow speak to identity in a way that they weren't seen as doing in like, you know, the 90s mm. or, the, or the noughties, um, in that um, you know, you, you, you feel yourself some, somehow emotionally invested in the idea of the party in a way that you weren't when they were purely bureaucratic machines which were there to administer government, basically. OK, so, oh, so maybe the aberration was the kind of the sort of 90s spin mm. era. Mm. Was that the aberration? It was kind of one way in which people's identity was closely tied to a kind of broader culture of politics and party in the 50s and 60s. And now... A different way, but again, there's a stronger investment people have with these things. That, that's what Corbyn's doing, right? That's what that's. I, I mean, I pinpoint, I point this on Corbyn. I mean, possibly Farage on the other side, like you know, these sort of figures who refuse the idea of the sort of the 
technical bureaucracy yeah. of, of the political party are and you, do something quite are different. Are you what Ian Dale will call a hackneyed old Trotsky? <laughs> no. I think there's about 200 of them and they get like, you know, a massive amount of press. But I do. Th- I mean, I think it's I think it's exemplified in the not in my name type yeah. politics. That is so parties all have to understand that they have to be in some way setting a high moral ground it's not you know how they deliver certain services but what they represent as in terms of some kind of moral code and and that people's relationship to parties and to governments is what they are prepared to tolerate within their own particular moral codes which i think has a downside as well as some positive benefits okay. but okay. it's a very different kind of political expression i think to the ways in which people have joined the Labour Party in the 1950s or the Conservatives yeah. in that sense. It's interesting and you mentioned a minute ago the, the, the Me Too movement and what I thought was interesting um, was was listening to the to Oprah Winfrey uh, at the Golden Globes and what was almost the, the most amazing political speech from a non-politician. So we'll hear a little bit and then you can tell me what you thought of it. So I want all the girls watching here and now to know that a new day is on the horizon. And when that new day finally dawns, it will be because of a lot of magnificent women, many of whom are right here in this room tonight, and some pretty phenomenal men fighting hard to make sure that they become the leaders who take us to the time when nobody ever has to say me too again thank you john what did you make of that when you heard it well of course these these ceremonies you know the oscars the globes and all that have often been platforms political speeches you know from marlon brando and others in the past but it did seem to me that was different that was a speech which was much more clearly formed around a kind of political agenda and a political style that we are now more familiar with. So I think that was a political speech. And I think the most extraordinary thing about it was, I think it was, must have been a day, two days later, where St- Steven Spielberg is saying, I support Oprah for president. And you suddenly <laughs> realise that the whole world of politics has been shifted to Hollywood. You know, that's where things are going to be decided. Who's going to be president? Who's going to decide who's going to be president? Yeah. Is, 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 is located in a new kind of political that, economy, a new political communication. That sounds quite scary to me. Should I be worried? <laughs> I think it's worrying. But this is part of a bigger shift, isn't it? Which mm. has been, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about how New Labour in the 90s was creating a new kind of style of mm. political leader. So... Part of what we're seeing very clearly is that the routes to achieving political prominence and political power are no longer just or perhaps not primarily through political parties and local authorities, that there are these other ways in which you can achieve a platform of public prominence and where people... That's not so new, like you say. Mm. What did Marlon Brando say that was politically interesting? Well, he no, he, well, he, he brought on. It was about uh, American nat- natives, on, uh, Native Americans, Native Americans, and. Um, he brought someone on the stage in, in, as part okay. of the acceptance of his uh, uh, Oscar and gave it to her as part of the gesture. And, and then, you know, right. but, it, but at that time it would have been kind of unthinkable for him to then move into politics. That's right. And then yeah. when someone like Reagan went from film acting to politics, he had been involved in politics Absolutely, for a long time yeah, and came yeah. through a more traditional route of governor and so. But now, Donald Trump, perhaps Oprah Winfrey, but mm. also other political celebrities or celeb- people who become celebrities who become political are achieving kind of yeah. a status of a different kind. Yeah. I mean, that's right. Well, we, and it's not just America because George Ware, the professional footballer who becomes you know, president of Liberia. Okay. You know, I mean, this is, this is not an exclusively American phenomenon by any stretch. 
strange, I think. This the celebrity culture in politics, is it is it a worrying trend? Is it is it actually a good thing if people are more engaged in politics because their celebrities are are too? So I was I've been looking at this a slightly different way. I've been looking at like uh, the arguments around Mark Zuckerberg's uh, Facebook's potential presidential run. And and what was really interesting about the Oprah Winfrey speech is that one of the ways I've been sort of trying to gauge how people are thinking about this is looking at uh, betting odds. Uh, for the next president. It's always a good idea. <laughs> always. You, you <laughs> get it, la, the la, Ladbrokes know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, or it's, it's in this case, Bet365. And I think... I think, I think uh, other betting agencies are available. Yeah, uh, yeah no, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> didn't want to do that. Uh, Oprah has been on the been in the top 20 people for sort of democratic candidate for like a long time long before this speech so you know there's an anticipation that this is what people are going to do there's like you know George Clooney has been has been touted um I think I think the reality will be quite different when we get to the next presidential election but I think these factors will be really significant and anyone who can give themselves that sort of platform can shape the agenda of you know the eventual candidate uh, to quite a significant degree um, and so I think I think watching the primaries and, and seeing how all of this plays out will will, will be really interesting because celebrity will be a significant factor. In but celebrities aren't just being politically active in and through political parties, right? They're also picking up and seizing and pushing particular issues. And and since you are Britain's greatest living expert on Russell Brand, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's a different kind of political activism that he got involved in, not looking for office but sort of running against office, but pushing on particular. Issues. I mean, is there is there a lot of substance there, or well, sometimes. I mean, the thing about Russell Brand is, I mean, he was he was like almost a definitive anti-politician, and like when he when he actually came out and endorsed Ed Miliband, like you know, it was too it, it was too too uh, it wasn't too little, too late. Yeah, and it, and yeah. it just was completely incongruous with yeah. like you know the stuff he said before. But where he could use his celebrity in a way that was about amplifying existing movements or where his celebrity was not the center of attention but could draw attention to the issue he was incredibly effective like particularly in housing campaigns around east london so celebrity politicians can um outside of the mainstream political arena really be effective um perhaps when they move into it mm-hmm. um it's a more of a mixed bag okay we'll have to wait and see um one of the other thing of course that has changed enormously is the use of social media in campaigning and elections and i mean perhaps last year we saw what i guess would have been our first social media election really genuinely because things uh, moved and changed in a way that we didn't expect to and one of the thought things i thought was really interesting was the way that um, these campaign groups such as Momentum really moved their shift onto social media and, and shifted onto Facebook. So let's hear a little bit of one of their films from Facebook just after the last election and then you can tell me about how you think um, how you think that change has most been obvious and manifested itself. When Theresa May called this snap general election, she thought she was going to wipe us out for a generation. We don't have enough seats to form a majority. But thanks to you, we have made one of the most spectacular comebacks in British political history. After the election was called, you wasted no time in getting organised. For the last seven weeks, you've pounded the streets, you've knocked on the doors, and you've had the conversations that have changed this country. And on election day, tens of thousands of you took time out to help get the vote out for Labour. And this changed everything. We've rocketed in the polls, and have seen the biggest increase in Labour's vote share since 1945. We've gained seats when everyone predicted there'd be heavy losses. 
including some monumental swings to labour. So I'm kind of hoping that this helps us tie up some of the things we've been talking about so yeah. far, right? Because what we've been talking about is kind of a period of perhaps cynicism or from uh, people who are too poor as politicians thinking mm-hmm. they're kind of disconnected, inauthentic, too tightly controlling news media through kind of celebrity and different ways in which people re- interact with politics, maybe at a more individual level or it has an expressive dimension. So now we're talking about a situation in which, on the one hand, there's a kind of political celebrity mm-hmm. in Jeremy Corbyn, but not at all like Oprah or Russell Brand. It's coming through the mainstream political system, but in a very mm. different kind of way. We've got a form of media that helps people interact with that and communicate that themselves in their own way. Because yeah. part of what happens around momentum is people making their own videos or memes or writing their own articles and getting them out and promoting their position. So there's something different about how people are connecting with politics that combines sort of individual expressive identity part with connections with, with what is actually a traditional mainstream political party. So it seems to me there's quite a lot happening in that phenomenon that tells us what went wrong perhaps in the last 20, 30 years and some of the things that are changing. How people are engaging with politics now? I mean, it, is, it, is it a positive thing that we are using social media to get more people engaged with politics? Or is, as we go back to the talking about trust and truth, it, does it create problems for us as well? I mean, I, I mean, clearly to have more people engaged, which is what's happening, is a good thing. I think the worry is, of course, that it's a, it's a, it's a particular kind of engagement, engagement which is kind of about ensuring that the people speaking to you are people with whom you agree and that there is much that less opportunity perhaps for the kind of political argument that you might also want and welcome in a, in a, in a in the public sphere. Because of our filter bubbles and our That's algorithms right, yeah. delivering us what we yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I suppose the, the difficulty as well is a lot, it's become quite um, abusive online as well, actually, in terms of, you know, the, the kind of abuse that politicians are getting. And, and, and that must be difficult as well. I think it's not just politicians. I think people within their own sort of news feeds on Facebook, like, you know, can find they, uh, they have less in common with the people in their you know, networks than they had done previously. But unlike previously, you can't, you know, you couldn't just block someone uh, or cut them out. And I think, I think that it, it's, we don't really understand how this dynamic is, is going to play out in terms of how we, we have political conversations collectively in small groups or, you know, nationally. Uh, and one of the problems is, is the algorithms keep changing. So, you know, Zuckerberg's like, I don't know, I don't, you know, I don't want to be responsible for all of these horrible political things going on. So I'm going to change the algorithm. So you need to see your friends and family. So maybe we're going to have like less... Uh, stuff from momentum coming through and more arguments with a uh, you know aging <laughs> uncle who um, might not share our views on Brexit, for instance, or more cat videos. But, but it's more complicated, than that is it? Because because it is it it isn't about just the sort of national level picture. Part of what's happening is this is enabling people to interact with each other and educate each other about politics or particular kinds of politics or to develop a political passion or a political movement or political ideas in smaller groups and then carry that out sometimes into a wider public sphere, sometimes not do that. So what, what we're doing now wouldn't really have made sense, maybe for, certainly not 10 years ago, maybe not mm-hmm. five years ago. But now lots of people can get together, communicate yeah. what they want to communicate, see if there's an audience out there for that and have some interaction with that. So there's definitely people getting involved with and engaged with politics and learning about politics through these new kinds of ways of interacting, Facebook groups, podcasts, other kinds of things. And that's, that's going to, I think that's going to be quite an important process in the, you know, in, well, I think it already is an important process, but that's a change in the way people come to politics. You know, when I, you know, I would have become politicised through, in the 1980s, through big national events, but then political parties and certain kinds of established protest groups, pressure groups that you then got connected with in real, real mm-hmm. time, real life, 
educated you in their ways of thinking about politics and you, you know, that's where you learn to argue and think about politics. Now that's, ha- that's happening in a different way, but I think it's happening in quite an intense way mm-hmm. for people online mm-hmm. uh, on the left, certainly on the far right. Lots of people are getting sucked into particular ways of thinking about politics dominated by race and nationalism in a way that hasn't happened before. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we see it panning out over the next five to ten years? Can anybody make a prediction? I don't think we could have another Arab Spring. I was just thinking about that as you're talking. It's just like, you know, there there was this moment where social media were given, you know, credit for these huge geopolitical changes. And I don't think we're going to see that happen again. I I think we're seeing this bedding down, I think we're seeing these become mature technologies and the sorts of um, political formation that come out of that uh, are gonna, we're gonna start to see what they look like, mm-hmm. you know, properly. Um, I don't know, and I don't know what that is yet. Any thoughts, John? I, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> is it that we don't know? We just don't know. I, I mean, you don't, you, haven't, you don't know Twitter. You no. don't do Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you well, do you podcasts. have me labelled. You know, you know, I, I only look backwards. I don't look forwards. <laughs> Alan, any last thoughts? So, well, I, th- I think we are seeing... So, so, the week, so we're talking in the week that Carillion went bust and there's a big scandal about government involvement or failure to support or not support or supporting the wrong kinds of public outsourcing. And it was very no- striking to me that the way the Labour Party responded to that wasn't by putting lots of people up on the Today programme or the Mars show or going on those... They were really outlets. quiet, yeah. But, but they released... Jeremy Corbyn released a video mm. where he made a statement and went out on his particular mm. networks. And that's a different way of doing politics to the Blair era where we started. He doesn't have to worry about managing the news media or how to, as you put it earlier, tie that response to the media to a particular political project that's then shaped by it, he can find his own ways to reach the audience he wants to reach. Now, whether that's going to be enough of an audience for electoral success, that's, that's the gamble question, that he's playing. Yeah. But it seems to me that that's a profoundly significant change in the way politics happens, except that it comes down to a bloke giving a speech mm. about politics. So in that sense, it's old stuff happening in a very different way. Okay. And he doesn't have to answer for what he says, of course, either. No tricky questions when you make a Facebook video. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you, um, Alan Finlayson, of course, and uh, Ben Little and John Street. I'm Claire Preecy. If you enjoyed our discussion, you can find more of this on the Eastminster website. That's at ueapolitics.org. If you liked it, please tell a friend. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) 